Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. I know we said last week would likely be our last episode before our Christmas break, but the Supreme Court had other ideas. They sure did. In fact, the court issued a couple of highly anticipated decisions about Texas's SB 8 bill and also grants in several new cases. Since there haven't been any new oral arguments since our last episode, let's jump right into new grants. The justices agreed to hear seven new cases and consolidated two of them for briefing and argument. There's Golan v. Sada, which involves an issue about when a child has to be returned to his or her home country when that child is involved in an international child custody dispute. There's Southwest Airlines Company v. Saxon, where the court will decide whether workers who load or unload goods from vehicles that travel in interstate commerce, but who themselves do not physically transport uh, those goods, are interstate, quote, transportation workers exempt from the Federal Arbitration Act. Next are the two consolidated cases, which are ZF Automotive U.S. v. Luxshare Limited and Alex Partners v. Fund for Protection of Investors' Rights. As Amy Howe over at SCOTUS blog pointed out, the issues in these two cases are essentially the same as the issue in the Servtronics v. Rolls-Royce case that the justices had agreed to hear earlier this year. But because the parties in the Rolls-Royce case settled, the justices are now tackling the same issue here. And that issue is whether federal district courts have discretion under a federal law to order someone to give testimony or produce documents for use in a foreign or international tribunal where the parties are involved in a private arbitration. And then the last one we want to cover today is Torres v. Texas Department of Public Safety. This involves a suit by a former military member against the state of Texas, and the question presented is whether Congress has the power to authorize suits against non-consenting states pursuant to its constitutional war powers. We also had one notable denial of an emergency application. That was the challenge to New York's vaccination mandate for healthcare workers. The healthcare workers claimed that it violated the free exercise clause of the First Amendment because it required employers to fire healthcare workers who refused a vaccine and didn't give a religious exemption. Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch would have granted the application. As GC mentioned earlier, the court also issued its highly anticipated opinions in the two Texas cases related to Texas's abortion law, SB 8. GC, can you tell us about that decision? Yes, absolutely. These cases concern the Texas Heartbeat Act, called SB 8, a ban on abortions after the fetal heartbeat is detected, which usually occurs around six weeks. Key to the bill, though, was no government official had any ability to enforce it. It was enforced by private individuals bringing private civil lawsuits. It's been reported that the law prevents approximately 150 abortions per day in Texas. The issue is... Who, if anyone, can the challengers sue to block it since the government has no enforcement power? The court issued its opinion this week holding that abortion providers could sue only licensing officials who have the power to take away the licenses of abortion providers who break the law. But they could not sue state judges, state court clerks, the Texas attorney general or individuals who have no intention of filing suit. Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion – 
saying that under a case called Ex Parte Young, the challengers could not sue state court judges or state court clerks because that would violate principles of federalism. Justice Thomas wrote separately saying that the challengers couldn't sue anyone, in fact. Justice Roberts, joined by the court's liberals, dissented and said that he would have allowed anyone uh, to be sued except individuals uh, with no intent to sue uh, and said that essentially this is an end run around the constitutional right as established in Roe uh, versus Wade to have an abortion. Justice Sotomayor also wrote a very strenuous dissent calling the decision a dangerous end run around the court's abortion precedents and accusing the court sort of strangely of reversing its precedents by not allowing these lawsuits to go forward, uh, which I, I call confusing because her opinion actually essentially called for an overruling of ex parte Young. And Justice Gorsuch, in his majority opinion, tweaked her a little bit for playing, I think, what he probably considered uh, a sort of shell game with precedent. In a related case, the court dismissed the challenge that had been filed by the Biden administration against Texas. No opinions there. It just said dismissed. And I think it was dismissed as having been improvidently granted. Which, That's right. We call those digs. Which I viewed as kind of a, uh, a pushback against the, uh, the fact that the Biden administration even filed this lawsuit. SB8 could still be struck down when someone sues the licensing officials, so it has been suggested by pro-life advocates that Governor Abbott should call a special session of the legislature to have them amend SB8 to remove the portion allowing licensing officials to take away licenses from SB8 violators. That would essentially put us back in the position where nobody gets to sue. In other notable news, the Biden Supreme Court Commission released its report, which landed with, I think, a fairly resounding thud. The good news, I suppose, is that it didn't take a position on any issues, including controversial ones like court packing. Essentially, what it did instead is it discussed several different court reform proposals, including differing views about each of those proposals. All in all, it seems like the commission, as predicted, was a pretty pointless exercise. <laughs> now, what is interesting is that after the commission released its report, some senators, including most prominently Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, are now arguing that the Senate should engage in court packing by passing legislation adding four more justices, which is one more than the number of justices appointed by President Trump. Obviously, I think that is a very bad and very absurd <laughs> idea. Well, moving into our interview this week, we have the pleasure of being joined once again by one of our favorite government officials. Well, we are joined today by District Court Judge here in D.C., Judge Trevor McFadden. Judge, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, G.C. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Our pleasure to have you. So to start, uh, your legal career actually started uh, in law, but in sort of in a different way. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, I was a police officer right out of um, undergrad. I had actually already been accepted to law school, uh, University of Virginia, but as I was um, going into my senior year of college, several of my uh, mentors encouraged me to think about taking a year off. Um, and uh, it, for financial reasons, it also made sense. My, my parents had very generously paid for my undergrad, but they made clear anything after that was on me. <laughs> um, so I, I thought it would make sense to take uh, a year or two off. And as I thought about different options, uh, law enforcement really – uh, sprung to mind. I'm uh, probably one of those uh, little boys who wanted to be a police officer who never really outgrew that desire. 
um, the the interest in public service, enforcing the law, and and protecting people uh, have always uh, really been close to my heart. So when I thought about things that would make sense, that was a natural fit, and and especially since I wanted to go on to law school and and hopefully become a prosecutor one day, I thought mm -hmm. being a uh, police officer would would help make me a better prosecutor. When you were in law school, did you find that having been a police officer – actually, we'll get to this in a minute. You still were a police officer uh, through much of law school and your career after that. Uh, did that um, affect your perspective, give you a different perspective than your classmates? Sure. Um, I, I think certainly in the um, criminal law classes, um, evidence classes, those type of types of things, uh, my, my experiences, my background uh, gave me a very different perspective. Um, when and, and also, frankly, just in trial advocacy, I'd, I'd been a witness, of course, uh, hundreds of times as a police officer, I think, in a courtroom. So I, I think very few law students or even lawyers have done that. Um, but, but certainly when we were discussing Fourth Amendment law, Fifth Amendment law, uh, people's constitutional rights and their interaction with the government, I uh, was thinking through those having uh, – been a police officer and had to make split-second decisions, of course, with um, some very rudimentary legal training from in, in a police academy, but certainly nothing like uh, law students uh, get. And, and I had to make those decisions in, in real time, split-second, um, that could have uh, significant implications for um, the people with whom I interacted and, frankly, with for me. I mentioned that you had you continued to serve as a police officer both during law school and as a uh, as what um, um, what's the a reserve was it a reserve deputy a uh, part time deputy part time sheriff. deputy even while you were a prosecutor why did you spend your free time doing that so when I went to law school the, being a, a part time deputy sheriff uh, was attractive uh, probably primarily for financial reasons mm -hmm. again looking to to help support myself in law school. Um, in years afterwards, after, as as a lawyer, you know the financial perspective really, uh, if anything, probably counseled against uh, <laughs> driving down to Madison County uh, to to uh, be a a deputy sheriff. But um, that that sense of service and and call to to duty uh, really uh, stuck with me, um, and. Um, also, the the opportunity to escape from being behind a desk, uh, just interacting with lawyers, mm -hmm. and and frankly being in the D.C. bubble, getting out to rural Virginia and interacting with real people, um, and um, trying to help people that mm -hmm. was uh, just continued to be a, a, a passion and a um, give me a, a real sense of of calling, and and frankly also uh, continue to to provide a a connection with uh, my quote-unquote clients as, as I was a prosecutor at this time and, mm -hmm. and uh, was, of course, was dealing with uh, police officers every day. And so having that connection with mm -hmm. them, I think, was helpful. The one uh, brief window when you were not serving as a uh, deputy, uh, you were uh, clerking on the Eighth Circuit for Judge uh, Stephen Colleton. Did I pronounce that right? Colleton? Colleton. Okay. Uh, tell me about that experience. It was terrific. I, I had a, a year uh, working for Judge Colleton in Des Moines, uh, Iowa with three other clerks. I, I loved that year. It was uh, certainly a wonderful transition from being a law student to being a lawyer. Um, I felt like I learned a lot. Uh, I, I loved getting to discuss 
legal issues, be it issues in the headlines of the day or um, it, the the cases that were before us with um, three super smart co-clerks and and with the judge. Mm-hmm. It was it was phenomenal. Do you have any uh, special memories of the judge? Yeah, um, Judge Colleton is. Uh, He's an incredibly smart, principled man. Uh, I, f- I feel like I learned a lot about judging from him and um, uh, frankly just being a better lawyer. Uh, I never worried that I was going to mess up the federal reporters because by by the <laughs> end of his edits to my draft, it frankly typically looked very little like my draft and, and very much like the, the work of a, a brilliant and seasoned jurist, uh, which he is. Um, I uh, he also uh, had some fun traditions for uh, us as as um, his clerks. Um, we sat in Des Moines, as I said, but court week would be typically in in um, St. Louis, Missouri. So we'd be there with a number of other judges and uh, law clerks from around the Eighth Circuit. Um, he took uh, us with some other judges and their co clerks to or their clerks to uh, see a baseball game. I think the first court week we were down there, we'd, we'd have uh, dinner or lunch with him uh, periodically. So yeah, it was, a, it was a wonderful year. After your clerkship, uh, you worked the, uh, the DOJ in the office of the Deputy Attorney General. What did you do there? So I was a counsel to the, the Deputy Attorney General, the, the DAG in DOJ speak. <laughs> um, that was a Amazing opportunity for for a young lawyer. The the uh, the DAG, as you probably know, GC, he's the number two in the Justice Department, and and really is um, responsible for running the Justice Department on a day to day basis. And he's got a couple dozen attorneys who uh, advise him and and frankly help implement uh, his priorities. So um, my portfolio was kind of a potpourri of. Um, criminal issues. I uh, worked on identity theft, civil rights issues, um, immigration, um, Native American um, uh, portfolio. I worked with the Bureau of Prisons. Um, his his office gets the the most sensitive, the most urgent, the the um, most complex, the the highest profile matters that the Justice Department is dealing with uh, of the day. And um, so uh, most of the attorneys uh, are um, seasoned, uh, very um, impressive um, attorneys who are on the top of their game uh, working for him. And there were a few of us um, younger counsel um, and, and it was a great opportunity just to be involved and pitch in mm-hmm. however we could. And after that, you fulfilled the dream of becoming a prosecutor as an AUSA uh, here in the district. Tell me about uh, that work and uh, some of your most memorable cases. Sure. So the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office is unique in that it is essentially the the primary prosecutor for um, the city. Uh, As as you and your listeners are probably aware, um, typically there's a a, a DA, a, a state's attorney, that is responsible for prosecuting the vast majority of cases and and, um, U.S. Attorney's Office would would handle the the rare federal case. But D.C., the U.S. Attorney's Office handles it all. Um, So most of those AUSAs and certainly all of the junior AUSAs are in the Superior Court Division uh, essentially prosecuting Mm -hmm. um, local crimes uh, with a federal title. 
And so I came in prosecuting possession of marijuana cases, solicitation of prosecution, simple assault, and over the course of my tenure there, um, rotated through different uh, sections uh, handling in increasingly important cases. Um, so it was a wonderful way to to learn to be a a litigator. Um, we uh, in in training the the most uh, comforting piece of advice I got was that if this was an important case, we wouldn't be giving it to you. <laughs> uh, and so for all of us brand new prosecutors um, starting out, we kind of had the comfort of knowing that it was okay to to make mistakes, mm. uh, and I'm sure I did. Um, one of my uh, – actually, my, my first jury trial um, was after I'd been there a number of months and tried a number of uh, misdemeanor bench uh, cases. But um, this was a, a case involving a code pink protester who had thrown bloodstained money on the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Senate Armed Services Committee hearing. And so she'd been charged with a jury demandable misdemeanor, uh, disruption of Congress or something like that. And uh, that was assigned to me as my first jury trial. Um, so it was pretty nerve-wracking to actually be speaking to, to a, a jury of DC citizens rather than just to a, a judge. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, the, the incident had been, of course, captured on C-SPAN. And so I really had you know, ter terrific proof mm -hmm. of the, the crime that I intended to show on a, a big screen TV. But in, in typical lawyer fashion, when the moment to use technology came, <laughs> I choked and couldn't get it to work. And so I actually had to show the jury this crucial piece of evidence on my laptop, <laughs> uh, trying to show them, uh, you know, walking around the room showing this little uh, blow up of, of the video of her um, disrupting Congress. Um, but uh, nonetheless, the jury convicted her and um, the judge actually gave her um, uh, the, the maximum sentence uh, in light of both, you know, this kind of some hazmat and other real concerns about throwing money or bloodstained money on someone. Yeah. But, but also um, she'd uh, had a long uh, record of of uh, basically getting slaps on the wrist for for uh, disturbances um, and and similar um, shenanigans, and uh, she finally got a, a judge to to hold her responsible mm -hmm. for it. Um, as I progressed on, I had, uh, as I said, uh, more important cases. Uh, there is a, a robbery um, that's always stuck in my memory. A, a, a woman walking through Farragut Square, right up here near the White House, uh, who was jumped at night and. Um, struggled with the robber over her purse, mm. was able to hold on to it, but um, she um, um, uh, he did rob her of her cell phone, and um, that was a, a, a trial that she, she was just a a, a very uh, a winsome, articulate, and and sympathetic um, witness and, and victim, and I felt real sense of um, personal. Um, accomplishment in, in, in getting justice for her. Uh, it also got me probably my closest to my uh, my few good men, I want the truth <laughs> moment. The, the defendant uh, took the stand, which mm -hmm. as you know is pretty unusual in criminal mm -hmm. cases and he claimed that he had been at church at the time of the robbery. Um, and I was able to bring a, 
a police officer who very quickly did some um, uh, detective work and discovered that the church actually wasn't open at that time of day. <laughs> um, and moreover, I, I, um, he had several cell phones that had been stolen on him at the time of the arrest, uh, one of which portrayed him not at church but at a rave party later that that night. So – um, I, I uh, took special joy in, in uh, the rebuttal where I was able to, to show that this was uh, not a church-going man but a, a raver uh, in between his, his um, robberies. Um, I, I, there's another robbery that I handled near the end of my tenure. Um, a a um, young Guatemalan man had been jumped by uh, six MS-13 gang members mm. apparently as a gang initiation for one of them and robbed and um, stabbed. Mm. Um, he couldn't speak English. In fact, for him, Spanish was a second language. He spoke a, a very um, um, unusual dialect uh, from the, the area of Guatemala that he came from. And so it was an incredibly challenging case, just the two of us learning to communicate through an interpreter and, and him not even being able to, to speak uh, fluently with the interpreter. Um, it was uh, – I, I think he had a lot of uh, fear um, just about the criminal justice system mm. um, given uh, his background from Guatemala. Uh, and then I was uh, trying to I, – I had this six-code co-defendant uh, trial that went on for several weeks. Um, we were eventually able to convict a couple of the folks who were most directly involved, but um, several of them were acquitted, which um, has has always uh, kind of stuck with me. I, I, I felt bad that I wasn't able to um, hold accountable all of those who had been involved um, um, more indirectly, um, um, and and so that uh, those you know being in especially in superior court, most of those cases have victims, mm -hmm. and, and you feel a real um, sense of the importance of your job and and how your job really makes a difference uh, each day in the lives uh, both of the the defendants, but but of of the victims as well. What made you uh, give up? What sounds like a very exciting. Uh, life uh, for private practice at Baker McKenzie afterwards. Well, the um, two things. Uh, the, the the direct reason was money. Um, <laughs> I'd uh, married my law school sweetheart um, Kelly at the time Lynch, uh, and she had gone into private practice. Was um, a terrific associate at Sidley Austin, um, and so I had the, the great good fortune of. Um, handling my dream job but also having a, a law firm associate's lifestyle. Um, but uh, f four years into my time at the uh, Justice or U.S. Attorney's Office, um, our first child came along and my wife told me that she was no longer interested in working uh, big law um, hours and it was time for me. <laughs> uh, it was time for me to support the family for a change. So um, I needed to look um, around for a, a new line of work. Uh, and so uh, that was part of it. The other part, frankly, um, one of my uh, mentors, uh, Paul McNulty, had uh, encouraged a group of us um, uh, back when we were uh, interns for him at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Alexandria to consider uh, a path to public service that involved work both in law firm but also in public service. 
and he suggested that there are skills and opportunities that you can get in public service that mm-hmm. you can only get in public service but but also uh, conversely um, the opportunity to have a living breathing client to um, uh, some of the resources that law firms have um, there there there's training and opportunities that you can only get at at a law firm that you couldn't get in government so I knew I'd, I'd wanted to spend time in in private practice mm-hmm. and made sense uh, at that point. And after that, you went back to public service uh, holding two senior positions in the criminal division at DOJ. What did you do there? Um, so I was brought in to be the deputy assistant attorney general over the fraud section, which is uh, really DOJ's probably preeminent uh, white collar shop and also their criminal appellate um, section, which of course, handles appeals for the criminal division, but also more broadly uh, works with uh, U.S. attorneys' offices around the country in in a lot of their criminal appeals. So uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to to get to um, help uh, direct those two um, wonderful um, sections there in DOJ. Uh, shortly after I arrived, I also got tapped to act as the number two in the criminal division, the was the acting principal deputy assistant attorney general, and uh, the PDAG, if you will. <laughs> um, and in that role, I um, oversaw the um, entire division um, that has not only those uh, sections but also handles uh, money laundering cases and uh, narcotics trafficking cases and public corruption. Um, they they oversee all of the the wiretap um, uh, warrants uh, warrant requests from around the country. So uh, it's it's really a, a broad portfolio with a, a lot of wonderfully talented and dedicated attorneys. Switching gears now uh, to your time on the bench, you went from there to your confirmation hearing, which was a rare display of bipartisanship. Uh, at the time, it was, um, what, 84 to 10? Unheard of in modern days. I don't know what you did, but <laughs> but well done. Uh, and uh, now you've been on the bench since 2017. What are some of your reflections? Yeah, um, incredible amount of gratitude. Um, this is a, a wonderful job. I uh, love getting to... Um, serve in in this capacity. Being being a district judge means you have this uh, just vast array of different types of cases. Um, you might have a sentencing in the morning and a motion hearing on a preliminary injunction in the afternoon. Um, you're you're overseeing trials. You're um, overseeing discovery disputes. Um, you're you're working on opinions on on some really tough uh, legal issues. And uh, the District of Columbia just has a fascinating caseload. The vast majority of our cases involve the federal government Mm -hmm. uh, either suing or being sued. Um, And so some of those are um, pretty pedestrian um, uh, employment disputes or or FOIA requests, but there are also a lot of um, really cutting edge and, and tricky cases uh, challenging executive orders or cases considering the role of administrative agencies in in certain cases. So um, a fascinating caseload. Um, I've got some wonderful colleagues and it's just a real privilege to to get to do the job. I wanted to switch gears um, relatedly but talk about – 
one, one of the challenges as a district court judge is, uh, as you've written in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, is what do you make of opinions from the Supreme Court on their shadow docket or what Justice Barrett calls the emergency docket? And these are you know, cases decided by the court on an emergency basis or, or rather I should say put before the court by litigants on an emergency basis. Um, and uh, we've seen a lot of tension, especially over the last year with COVID, with uh, lower courts trying to reconcile how do they deal with these precedents, which are not fully briefed, tend to be on uh, different standards than the lower courts themselves are using. And you've written an article about it, uh, how lower courts should go about dealing with them. Can you give us an overview? Sure. Yeah. So um, as, as you say, I come at this as a, uh, an inferior court judge, not trying to decide what the Supreme Court should be doing, but rather they get to tell us what we should be doing. And so uh, trying to understand what, if anything, they're telling lower courts in their shadow docket decisions. Um, this uh, comes up uh, relatively frequently, I think, at least these days, um, especially in the area of nationwide injunctions where mm-hmm. you'll see um, litigants challenging an executive order in multiple districts simultaneously on, on often substantially similar grounds. And the, the question kind of came to me, if one court has granted a nationwide injunction but the Supreme Court has then stayed that injunction – what, if anything, should I make of those decisions mm-hmm. if I'm facing substantially similar question in, in my court? And, and surprisingly, there was almost no literature or, or even case law on this question. Um, of course, typically, we care about what the Supreme Court says, not so much because of its impact on those individual parties, but because it's the Supreme Court and it is announcing rules that bind all of us lower courts in in any similar case. And so I got to wondering whether um, that is true in these emergency docket cases. Mm -hmm. And um, my research led me to believe that the answer is yes. Um, at least in in some cases, and and I think the the clearest example of this would be in um, some of these COVID church cases that you you alluded to a moment ago. GC um, Diocese of Brooklyn is a case that came out almost exactly a year ago, where the uh, then Governor Cuomo had uh, essentially been redlining houses of worship in in uh, New York. Uh, prohibiting them from opening while allowing gyms and liquor stores and um, shopping centers and what have you uh, be open all near around them. Um, And and, um, several synagogues and the Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn uh, sued um, seeking an injunction. The the district judge denied the injunction. Uh, They then appealed to the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit denied the injunction. And then they uh, moved for emergency stay at the Supreme Court. And after uh, getting briefing from both sides, the, the Supreme Court um, granted the stay and, and essentially struck down this um, uh, gubernatorial order um, uh, in a few days later. And um, they had a probably a, a four to five page per curiam opinion mm-hmm. and then several uh, longer uh, concurrences and dissents. Um, and what what happened next is really interesting and and is is what 
kind of tells me that there must – some of these um, shadow docket cases must have precedential effect. The Supreme Court then GVR'd a number of similar cases that were up in front of them and, and as many of your uh, listeners may know, GVRs grant, vacate and remand. Um, so, so basically um, uh, summarily vacated similar cases and directed the lower courts to reconsider those cases in light of Diocese of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. In my mind, that can only make sense if the Supreme Court thought Diocese of Brooklyn has some precedential effect. Um, Not only did they do that, but they took several other COVID church cases in the months that followed um, uh, and relied on Diocese of Brooklyn, this emergency um, docket uh, decision, um, culminating in Tandon. Uh, earlier this year where um, uh, Governor uh, Newsom in California had been discriminating against um, religious uh, people um, celebrating um, religious worship in their homes. Um, They uh, sued in a district court. The district court denied uh, uh, relief. They appealed to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit denied relief. Then they went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court again in an emergency docket decision gave pretty stinging rebuke to the Ninth Circuit saying this is now the fifth time that we Mm -hmm. have summarily reversed the Ninth Circuit in their um, COVID COVID orders uh, cases involving uh, religious liberty Um, and and, – and what's fascinating is that Tandon decision completely and I believe only relied on Diocese of Brooklyn and other um, emergency docket decisions. So um, it seems to me certainly some of these cases must have precedential effect or the, the Supreme Court thinks they do and mm-hmm. therefore us lower courts must think they do. I think harder call is is um, cases where you don't have a five-page per curiam where you you might just have a one or two line stay mm-hmm. of a lower court decision, and there I, I think the lower courts, um, when evaluating similar questions, need to to try to figure out if the Supreme Court has um, rendered a a decision on the likelihood of success and the merits, mm-hmm. which is is one of the factors that an uh, um, an applicant must show to get. Uh, um, uh, preliminary injunctive relief. Sometimes you're not going to be able to tell, but I think sometimes, particularly in these nationwide injunctions where you do have substantially comparable cases being filed around the country, um, you you may well be able to um, uh, determine that the Supreme Court has indicated um, uh, a view of the likelihood of success and the merits, even in a, a very um, short opinion. I'll tell you one area, um, GC, that I don't think would have precedential effect, mm-hmm. uh, at least in in the vast majority of cases, is where the Supreme Court denies relief. Sure. Um, as you know, the the Supreme Court denies um, cert petitions all the time, and for any number of reasons, uh, maybe just that their docket is too full, mm-hmm. and and I think. Uh, where where they've denied relief, uh, you you really you can't say much about why they did that or or what they they thought of the merits. But it's when they've actually chosen to act, uh, intervene in in an ongoing case that I think we in the lower courts need to uh, pay close attention and and to consider whether or not that 
decision has any relevance for uh, comparable cases in front of us. I noted that you wrote the piece with a former clerk of yours. I did. Um, tell me about your relationship with your law clerks and how you're building your own traditions. Yeah. Uh, so Vatan uh, Kapoor um, worked with me on that article after he had clerked. Um, he is one of my uh, uh, number of star clerks I've, I've had. It really just feels so privileged, the the quality of the applicants and and the the, the quality of the clerks that um, we get in my my court. Um, so I've been trying to start a, a few different traditions. Um, we uh, try to have lunch together uh, pretty frequently, and we'll have the the odd happy hour um, uh, on a, a Thursday afternoon or something in chambers. Um, but I, I, I've been trying to set a bit of a calendar. Um, we will have a, like a, an away day or a field trip every uh, fall and spring. Last week, we were just down in Charlottesville for a couple days. I was speaking at the University of Virginia Law School and, and it was a lot of fun mm-hmm. to bring my clerks along with me and we went on a hike, went out for um, some good meals and, and just spent some time getting to know one another. Um, a couple of them just uh, started uh, within the last month or two. In the past, clerks and I have gone to Baltimore for the day or visited Battlefield. Uh, we went to Harper's Ferry earlier this spring. So I've really enjoyed that type of kind of biannual uh, away day. Um, my wife and I usually have the clerks over for um, uh, Christmas dinner. Um, that's that's coming up here soon. We are um, doing a Every other year, we're trying to do a, a, a reunion with all the, the clerks. And so far, it's a small enough group that we can have the future clerks as well. So um, uh, that's we, we, we've been getting a, a good-sized group for that. Um, we've also been doing a book club. Mm. Um, we started doing this a, a few years ago. Uh, right now, we're uh, reading uh, Professor McConnell's uh, book, the, the President Who Would Not Be King, mm. on um, – the the uh, development of Article Two in the Constitution and the um, the role of the uh, president. Um, in the past, we've read biographies of different justices. Um, we read um, uh, Justice Gorsuch's book, Republic, mm-hmm. if you can keep it, and then had the wonderful opportunity of going and meeting him and speaking with him about the book mm-hmm. in, in uh, his chambers. So um, that that book club has been a fun way of engaging uh, with one another intellectually and and mm-hmm. on uh, often issues that are adjacent to the the matters that we're thinking about on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. So that's what we've been doing so far. Interesting stuff. Well, one final question for you, Judge. Um, we ask everybody on the show uh, if you could meet. Uh, and have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, I, I've gotten to know a couple of the uh, current Supreme Court justices and just feel so privileged uh, whenever I get to to talk with, with them. Uh, just really hardworking, um, brilliant uh, individuals. Um, so that's that's been wonderful. Um, if I think of any of the past justices – I think the one who springs to mind is Justice Scalia. He was um, so uh, f- uh, important in um, my uh, – particularly my legal education. I never got to meet him but um, his opinions often his dissents 
um, really have, I think, been um, uh, just a watershed moment in our our legal tradition. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to have gotten to talk with him about his career and, and how the law uh, evolved in, in large part because of his, his role in it. Um, I think it would also be fascinating to talk with him about the um, some areas where it seemed like his thinking changed over the years. Um, uh, people have pointed to uh, administrative law and and the the uh, deference that courts should uh, give to um, to federal agencies and 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 also um, his, his thinking about the um, the role of uh, courts in understanding the religion clauses. Mm-hmm. I, I think would be fascinating to to see his perspective now. Um, I guess one uh, one other person who is not a, a justice but probably should have been a learned <laughs> hand. Um, uh, I, I read a biography uh, about him um, in the Buck Club uh, a year or two ago, and I was struck by how his career has really kind of spanned the development of the substantive due process mm. doctrine, and how he was really quite a critic of it when it popped up in the Lochner era with economic substantive due process. But uh, he was uh, similarly very skeptical about it when uh, it, it's more recently uh, emerged in in uh, social uh, policy areas. And I've always thought there was a lot of integrity and, and um, clarity of thought mm-hmm. in, in how he talked about that issue. Well, Judge, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Well, DC, you thought you were going to have the last word on trivia before Christmas break last week, uh, but I guess I do. So are you ready for uh, today's trivia? <laughs> I'm ready. All right. Well, I thought today I could quiz you about one of our nation's earliest justices. And what got me thinking about this is this week in 1795, the Senate actually took its first recorded judicial confirmation vote. So my first question to you is, who was the first judicial nominee uh, to receive this distinction? That would have been Chief Justice John Rutledge from South Carolina. GC, you're off to a great start. I'm sorry. I said first Chief Justice, not first Chief Justice, second Chief Justice. That's right. He was our nation's second chief justice. Well, let me ask you this, GC. Uh, Since it appears you know a little bit about uh, John Rutledge, uh, do you know what happened with that vote? Uh, So I believe he was recess appointed in and then the Senate actually rejected him. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it was doubly embarrassing uh, for George Washington in several ways uh, because Washington had appointed Rutledge uh, through a recess appointment to serve as the chief justice. But shortly after the appointment, uh, Rutledge actually gave a controversial speech where he denounced the Jay Treaty, uh, which had been negotiated by his predecessor as chief justice, John Jay. And in fact, uh, this is believed uh, to have led to his uh, his loss of support in the Senate uh, to be Jay's successor. Interesting. All right. Well, you're off to a great start, GC. Okay. Uh, so do you know how long John Rutledge served as our nation's second chief justice? Oh, Zach, I couldn't. That, that's a tricky one. Um, I don't know how I could possibly know the exact – the exact length of time, but it was very short. Yeah, that's right. It was only 138 days. And in fact, uh, he owns the distinction of having the shortest tenure of any (laughs) chief justice in our nation's history. 
Do you know what job John Rutledge held immediately before President Washington appointed him uh, to be chief justice using his recess appointment power? Uh, Yes, in fact. He was the chief judge or justice in the South Carolina Court of Common Pleas, I think. Yeah, the Court of Common Pleas and Sessions. Now, what's interesting about this is that President Washington had actually nominated him and the Senate had confirmed him to be one of the five original associate justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. But he actually resigned from his associate justice position without ever having heard a case in order to take on the South Carolina chief justice uh, position. Now, final question, GC. Do you know who George Washington nominated immediately after Rutledge to be the chief justice? Well, I want to say Oliver Elmsworth, our third chief justice, but the fact that you're asking me that question suggests to me that maybe that's wrong. Very perceptive, (laughs) Uh, and it's a very good guess. Oliver Ellsworth was our nation's third chief justice, uh, but if you guessed him, you would be wrong, Uh, in fact, because in between Washington's nomination of Rutledge and Ellsworth, Washington actually nominated then-Associate Justice William Cushing to be the chief justice. And this is one of the more bizarre episodes in the history of American judicial nominations, which I think is really saying something uh, (laughs) given the current status uh, surrounding nominations. Uh, But Washington nominated Cushing and the Senate actually confirmed Cushing to be the chief justice. But after receiving his commission as the chief, Cushing actually returned it to President Washington shortly afterwards and declined the elevation, uh, citing health reasons. He wanted to stay on the court as an associate justice. Now, what's interesting, there's actually been some dispute about whether he declined the promotion or whether he actually, in fact, briefly served as the chief and then resigned from that position. I was going to bring up the same question. Maybe he actually technically was the third chief justice and then maybe he beats – Rutledge's record for shortest tenure. Well, it's a it is a matter of some debate uh, among historians, but it seems like the better view among historians currently is that he actually declined the promotion to chief and never served in that capacity. Uh, well, that may be better, but it's much less exciting. It is much less exciting, but the fact that he continued in service as an associate justice on the court until his death in 1810 suggests to me that it may be the correct view. <laughs> but yes, far less exciting. Well, well done today, GC. Uh, you ended the year on a high note. Well, you did so well last week. It uh, would have been pretty bad if I let you trounce all over all right. me today. We'll try it again in the new year. Well, that's it for today. And as a reminder, this really is our last episode before the court goes on its Christmas hiatus. Not never say wood. never, Zach. Right, right. We've been burned before. Uh, <laughs> but assuming that's the case, we'll see everyone again in the new year. So thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. And we hope everyone has a very Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.